two weeks ago, we talked gardens, particularly a story about how God and mankind once lived together in a garden in Eden, a paradise of delight wherein heaven and earth met. But in that place, a rift was formed, a wedge placed between God and mankind, separating the two. Today, we're talking about the barrier that was placed between God and man, and that barrier takes the form of a veil. Good morrow, everyone. My name is Ben Laboot, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry. This fortnightly podcast strives to reveal beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. God is holy. That is to say, God is unique. That's probably the least arcane interpretation. When you hear the adjective holy, think unique or singular. As in, God is different, unlike anything else. So pure and full of undiluted creativity, power, majesty, wisdom, love, and life, that everything that is not God, though it may have those attributes, cannot have them to the same intensity. One can liken this to the difference between finite and infinite. Any finite number, no matter how large, take the square of Graham's number, it doesn't matter, is negligible when compared to infinity. Definitionally, even the largest conceivable finite number approaches 0% of infinity. This matters because if God's power and life, God's uniqueness and holiness, are infinite, then even the next most holy person or thing, which is finite, is comparably unholy, pale in comparison, negligible when juxtaposed to God. As a separate lemma, it is important to note that raw, unfiltered, undiluted, uncompromised holiness like God's is, well, dangerous to unholy things. And because even the most holy person or thing you can think of is comparably unholy next to God, that person or thing cannot withstand and would be destroyed by the infinite holiness of God. But this is not because God's holiness is bad. It is because it is so, so good. The Bible Project uses a great metaphor. Its authors describe God's holiness like the sun. The sun is unique, powerful, and full of life. But to get too close to it is dangerous. In fact, when you read about people in the Bible who encounter God, they genuinely expect to die and are utterly astonished to find themselves alive after the encounter. For example, in the book of Judges, after being in the presence of God, a man named Manoah turned to his wife and told her, Surely we will die, for we have seen God. Elsewhere in the Bible, when Jacob, called Israel, realized that he had spent the night engaged with the divine, in astonished incredulity he said, 
I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. My favorite biblical story about such a divine meeting is when a prophet named Isaiah had a vision of being in the throne room of God. Isaiah, the holy prophet with a divine vocation, upon seeing the throne room of God exclaimed, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. For Isaiah to remain there, an angel came and purified the prophet by touching a hot coal to his lips, because even God's own prophet could not safely be in the place of God's incredible holiness, namely the throne room, without first receiving purification. I mention all of these things to establish that being in the presence of God is dangerous because God's goodness is too powerful for relative ungoodness like ours to endure. It's like getting too close to the sun. However, there is a way to safely be in the presence of God. Let's talk about ritual purity. But first, let's talk about the most holy place. The story goes that in the Garden of Eden, people walked with and in the presence of God, because at this time, people were undefiled by sin. But then, at a certain point, through sin, a wedge was driven between God and mankind. After that, the presence of God was no longer with men. The next time that God and humanity had a consistent connection was when God brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt and re-solidified their status as the chosen people, God's people. About that time, the Lord instructed the itinerant people of Israel to construct a special tent called a tabernacle. That tabernacle was divided into special rooms, and the innermost room, called the Most Holy Place or the Holy of Holies, was the place where the presence of God would dwell on earth. In that room, the Holy of Holies, heaven and earth, met. And like heat from the sun, it happened that the presence and holiness of God radiated outward from the Most Holy Place with the room abutting it being nearly as holy, though somewhat less, and that holy presence of God suffused outward until, when sufficiently far away from the center of the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, there was normal ground. Just like the prophet Isaiah entering the presence of God in the divine throne room and having to be purified to remain, so too did those entering the tabernacle have to be purified, specifically ritually purified, lest the holiness of God destroy them. That is, if one enter the holy and divine presence without first having been ritually purified, then death would result. There is a great scene in the Bible where Moses, the holy prophet and liberator himself, was unable to enter the tabernacle the tent of God, because he was not ritually pure. In response, God gave Moses and the people very clear, precise instructions about how to be ritually pure and how to regain that purity if lost. 
The instructions are collected in the book of Vaikra, which in English is called Leviticus. At the start of Leviticus, Moses was outside the tent, unable to enter. But at the start of the next book, called Beidmar in Hebrew or Numbers in English, Moses was inside the tent, because he had been ritually purified and thus was able to enter. Only the priests were allowed to enter the tabernacle, but even they were not allowed to enter the most holy place. Indeed, the standard ritual cleanliness wasn't enough to enter the Holy of Holies. Only once a year, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was anyone allowed to enter that sanctum. On that day, the high priest would cleanse himself, dress in special clothes, and enter the Holy of Holies to provide a sacrifice meant to atone for the sins of the nation. In this way, the high priest mediated between God and the people. At the start of this episode, I said that we would talk about the barrier that was placed between God and man. Now, that barrier was a veil, because the Holy of Holies was separated from the rest of the tabernacle by a veil. Fast forward about 500 years from the time of Moses, and the tent called the tabernacle was replaced with a physical building, oftentimes known as the temple but which is actually called Beit HaMikdash, a Hebrew phrase that essentially means house of holiness. Beit HaMikdash was designed as the tabernacle was, with a thick veil separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the building. Unfortunately, Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, but it was rebuilt in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. If we fast forward again to the year 19 BC, King Herod, called Great, refurbished that second Beit HaMikdash in a building project that was completed shortly after the birth of Jesus. The second Beit HaMikdash, as did the first Beit HaMikdash, as did the tabernacle, had a thick veil that separated the most holy place from the rest of the building. Although it is called by the word veil, the divider was not a gossamer sheet nor even a durable curtain. The veil, as it is known, was more likely akin to a giant carpet or thick rug. The rabbinic tradition, as recorded in the Mishnah, maintains that the veil was as thick as a man's hand. Now, that could always be hyperbolic language, but I think that it's safe to assume that this was a thick veil. Furthermore, in terms of its dimensions, this was not a small veil, covering a doorway or other small threshold. Rather, this veil completely divided the Holy of Holies from the rest of Beit HaMikdash, and was therefore several stories tall, and as wide, or nearly as wide, as the entire room. Imagine a single, giant portier capable of sectioning off an entire half of a cathedral. Aside from its physical implication as a veritable barrier, the veil that separated the people from the Holy of Holies, that is, separated them from the presence of God, 
was metaphorically representative of the sin that accomplished exactly the same thing. Furthering its elucidatory effect, the veil had a number of symbolic depictions on it, namely, reminders of the Garden of Eden. The veil had images of cherubim, the fierce, flaming sword-wielding heavenly beings that God placed at the garden's entrance to prevent people's return after God had expelled them from the paradise. So, the veil was to remind people that, at one time, they and God were in relationship without a barrier. But now, there had to be one. Once, people could enter into the presence of God. But now, they cannot. The second Beit HaMikdash began a refurbishment process in 19 BC, but fewer than 90 years later, in 70 AD, it was destroyed, never to be rebuilt again, even to this very day. The destruction of the second temple forced a radical change upon the Jewish people, transforming the Jews from people of the temple to people of the book. The reason why the Western Wall in Jerusalem is so sacred to Jewish people is because the Western Wall was part of the retention wall that surrounded Beit HaMikdash, the famous Western portion of said wall being the closest to where the Holy of Holies once was. Since Muslims do not permit Jews to actually stand upon the Temple Mount itself, since on it sits an Islamic holy site called the Dome of the Rock, the Western Wall is the closest that they can get to where the Holy of Holies once was. This is the reason why Jews pray at the Western Wall, as opposed to other parts of the Retention Wall that still stand today, because the Western Wall is the closest that Jews are allowed to get to where the presence of God once resided on earth. Why is it, then, that the Western Wall and the Temple Mount it surrounds are so religiously significant to Jews, but not to Christians? As you might have guessed, it has to do with Jesus and the Christian belief that he was the Son of God and Savior of humanity. Consider again Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, on which day the High Priest would enter the Holy of Holies, mediate between God and the people, and offer an unblemished lamb as a sacrifice for the sins of the people and for all the things that they've done that have ritually defiled and separated them from God. When Jesus was crucified, it was more than a political execution. He was offering himself as a sacrifice for the people. He, as God made flesh, incarnate as it were, became the unblemished and perfect lamb that was offered to God in atonement for the sins of the world. In Luke's Gospel account, it is recorded that when Jesus died, the veil in the temple was torn. Specifically, it was torn from top to bottom, symbolizing that it began in heaven and came down to earth. The veil, the barrier between God and men, was breached, not from the bottom up, as if people worked their way to God, but from the ceiling to the floor, because the restoration started with God and then came down to humanity. 
I spent a great deal of time discussing the size of the veil, its breadth, but also more importantly, its thickness, so that you could appreciate how humanly impossible it would have been to tear, that when the veil was ripped, it was an act of God. Now, the logical question that follows is, did the veil actually tear, or is that a metaphor? While I personally believe that the veil did physically tear, from top to bottom, the most honest answer I can give you is, I don't know. In truth, however, it doesn't matter. It's not an interesting question, nor, to be frank, a meaningful one. Whether physically or metaphorically, the question to ask is, since the veil did tear, what does it mean for us? The tearing of the veil means that a new covenant has been established and that the old religious system has passed away. It means that there is no longer a barrier between God and mankind. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, his death, the relationship between God and people has been restored, restored to how it was in the garden. Furthermore, the tearing of the veil indicates that Jesus is the high priest that mediates between God and the people, because he was the one who was able to pass through the veil, in fact, remove it altogether, and enter into the Holy of Holies. Jesus, as the Lamb that atones for the sins of the people, became our purification to stand before God unharmed and without fear of death. Jesus became for us what the Torah was for Moses, what the angel's hot coal was for Isaiah. Namely, he became our ritual purity. One overarching theme of the Bible is the restoration of the relationship between God and men. The story of the Bible is a story of the process of rejoining heaven and earth. The story began in a garden, with mankind and God together. The Old Testament was about God's first steps to mend the relationship through techniques like the Torah, ritual purity, and a tabernacle wherein God would meet the earth. But that relationship was veiled, both physically and metaphorically. In the New Testament, Jesus came and unveiled God. He interceded on behalf of the world, atoned for, that is, made expiation for, our transgressions, and restored the relationship. So once upon a time, a barrier existed between God and mankind, and Jesus overcame that barrier. But the story continues. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a new heaven and a new earth. It says, Behold, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. What began in a garden 
will end in a city. And the veil, which was once a reminder of the division between God and people, has been torn, and is now a reminder of the relationship that has been restored through Jesus. And God, who was once veiled and unapproachable, has been made accessible to all people, because through Jesus, Almighty God has been unveiled. Thank you for listening to Stories of Symmetry. We hope that this podcast is thought-provoking, uplifting, and all sorts of positive things for you. If that's true, don't be afraid to share Stories of Symmetry with the people in your life. And to help share this show with an even broader group, please consider subscribing, rating, and or reviewing this podcast, as that helps get us noticed by more people. As always, the next episode will be out one fortnight from today, and we hope that you'll join us then. In the meantime, go with God, go in peace.